I take it what Sotomayor would say in answer is, well, you could borrow from those works and you could do so if you're doing you it. You can't sell it. <laughs> yeah, you can't sell it. You can't make any money. Or if you want to make money, you got to pay for it and you got to pay the original artist for whatever you're appropriating. Is that not a sufficient answer? I just come back to so many basic things like the blues. It's all the same chord structure. They just change the words. So is Muddy Waters going to have to pay, or, or is Bessie Smith going to have to pay Muddy Waters is going to have to pay well, Mississippi John Hurt? It's absurd. And, you know, I think of Dylan. Well, I also think of Picasso. Good artists borrow, great artists heal. Hi, I'm Neil Katyal, and welcome to Courtside, a podcast about the Supreme Court and what it means to you. I've argued 50 cases at the Supreme Court and served as the federal government's top courtroom lawyer. But I want the court to come alive for you. My guests today are Adam Weinberg and Deborah Cass. And let me tell you, these are two amazing guests to talk about the Andy Warhol case. Adam is the head of the Whitney Museum, one of the greatest cultural institutions in the world, and the very greatest one in America. I'm privileged to be a trustee of that museum, and I've watched Adam's brilliance and leadership in so many different settings. He truly is one of the smartest people I've ever met. Adam, in turn, has introduced me to Deborah Cass, and what an honor it is to have her on the program. She is one of the greatest living artists, and she's perfect for this, because 30 years ago, she began something she called the Warhol Project. She brilliantly took Warhol's imagery, like the Marilyn Monroe silkscreen, and replaced it with objects of her own, like swapping Barbara Streisand for Marilyn Monroe. It's all about appropriation in one sense, and yet in another, all about transformation. Her work speaks to gender, to sexual identity, to religious identity. Both Adam and Deborah have served on the board of the Warhol Foundation, so they know their Warhol. One note to listeners, this episode of Courtside has really helped if you look at the podcast website, neilcatial.substack.com. That's because there are a bunch of key images, including the Orange Prince by Warhol, which is at issue in the U.S. Supreme Court case. So you might want to glance at that at some point. We will hear argument first this morning in case number 21-869, Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith. So first, I want to ask, I, I want listeners to have some background information on Andy Warhol, the artist in question. And Deb, I know your work and life have been deeply influenced by him. So can you tell me a little bit about him? Who was he and why should we care? Thank you so much for having me, Neil. If being a great artist means anticipating the future of not only art, but also of life, challenging the art that comes before you and influencing artists that come after you, Andy Warhol ranks at the very top. He anticipated consumer and celebrity culture, overwhelmed by nonstop images we live in now. He disrupted the 1950s idea of the artist as the tortured genius cowboy, the macho loner of abstract expressionism, by being a very out, very gay, first-generation American, and an enthusiastic participant, chronicler, and exploiter of commodity culture. So by making paintings using images of famous movie stars and consumer goods like Jackie Kennedy, 
Meryl Monroe, S&H Greenstamps, Campbell Stoop. He invented pop art, as in popular art, and reflected the culture he lived in back to the rest of us. And in it, we really saw our American selves. And the hook was the familiarity of his subjects. So like so many aspirational first-generation immigrants, Warhol had a real love affair with America. In this way, I love to compare him to Irving Berlin, an immigrant himself, a Jew who wrote White Christmas, and also understood the importance of a good hook. Both were deeply democratic in sound and image. Berlin wrote God Bless America, and Andy painted Campbell's soup cans. By the way, you just killed that. Yeah. <laughs> the podcast has begun and ended. <laughs> I just want to ask Deb a follow-up question, because you hear this a lot with Warhol, which is, this guy is lame He's just copying some soup cans. It doesn't take a genius to know we have consumer culture in America. That's, you know, kind of the staple of America at the time Warhol's living. So he's a huckster. The joke's really on us. How would you respond to that, Deb? Let Adam do that. Let Adam do it. Yeah, I, I, would, I would just say, why go. didn't why, why wasn't Goya painting soup cans? <laughs> <laughs> or, or why was he paying, painting wagon wheels? You know, I mean, it, 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 it's a totally, you know. Yeah. So let me maybe then drill down and ask the question, which is about this specific case. So you've got Warhol's works, his print series that are really the subject of this case. For our listeners, I think it'd be helpful to just first provide some background information on the case and then get into a discussion of the case and its implications with both of you. So in 1984, Vanity Fair commissioned Andy Warhol to create a portrait of Prince for their magazine cover. And the portrait was based on a photo taken by the photographer Lynn Goldsmith, who was paid $400 for the photo. Then, if you fast forward to 2016, the Andy Warhol Foundation sold another magazine the rights to one of the portraits of Prince that Warhol had produced. But the Warhol Foundation didn't pay Goldsmith for that transaction, leading Goldsmith to demand payment. And in response, the Warhol Foundation launched a lawsuit. And so this case is really all about copyright law, and copyright law gives artists a number of rights that are intended to preserve and promote creative expression. And it's like patents. If you're an engineer and you have an invention, you can be the intellectual property owner of that invention, and it incentivizes creativity. And the same theory goes for copyright and the work being the intellectual property of the artist. At the same time, artists don't have an absolute right over their work. And there's an important caveat to copyright called the fair use exception. And that says that if you criticize or teach or research or comment on a copyrighted work, you're doing nothing wrong. Under United States law, we call all of those actions fair use. But this case really shows that line between copyright infringement and fair use to be nebulous. And the law tells us that you have to factor into consideration and in trying to figure out whether something is fair use, you have to factor in the purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of a commercial nature. So that's the test. The purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of a commercial nature. 
And that's the heart of this case. So one side is saying Warhol's portrait of Prince so radically transformed the purpose and character of the original photograph that it became a new work in its own right. And in legal terms, this word transformation is really important because transformation suggests an artist has taken something old and created an entirely new product. And so they're arguing that Warhol transformed the original photograph and that he's created something with a new purpose and character. And the other side is saying, nope, you're just ripping off my work. You're taking my work and appropriating it and maybe even making some money off of it. So that brings us to the key question in the case, which is, did Warhol's use of Goldsmith's photo qualify as fair use or was it infringement? Can you break down Warhol's print series? What's iconic about it? What message is Warhol trying to send here? Supposedly, there are 12 paintings and four works on paper. And the reason I'm being picky and about it is that when he silkscreened something onto canvas, it had a different status than when he was printing something or then he was drawing something. Because in fact, what we're really talking about in many ways is syntax. It's almost a linguistic relationship of art making. So it's important to understand that even within the works, there are three categories of types of works. There are paintings, which are silk screens on canvas. There are prints, which are silk screens on paper. And then there are drawings. So then in fact, he clearly, and I guess my point is that Warhol is exploring these images in different ways, what they mean through technique and through the way you interact with the material itself. A silk, silk screen is different than drawing, both in terms of that. And, and if we're talking about the relationship in many ways of photography to quote-unquote painting, we call it a print series, but we're talking about photography, which is Lynn Goldsmith's piece, in relationship to painting, we're actually talking about different types of techniques. And each technique carries with it its own um, its own syntax. And so by virtue of the fact that he has shifted it technically, not to mention coloristically, that in itself is a transformation and a significant transformation. Even if the image were the exact same image, which it is not, it is cropped, it is, it is modified, it is... Um, so, I mean, there are actually many changes that occur in this through a combination of process and style. That's absolutely right, Adam. And uh, we're going to get into that in a couple of minutes. But just to, for yeah. for, you, for listeners to, you know, think about, change in syntax alone may not be enough. And this came up in the oral argument at the Supreme Court, where one justice asked, "Well, if you have a, a book that's written, and some Hollywood producer wants to come and effectively change the syntax and make a movie out of it, can they just do so without getting?" permission from the copyright holder, from the authors of the book or the publishers of the book. That is obviously a change in syntax and a change in medium. But would we want that producer to be able to just effectively rip off the book and make a movie? So that's where you know you get, I think, some copyright law is so complicated and difficult. And Deborah and Adam, what does the court ultimately decide and what's the rationale behind that decision? How I read the result of this case is that, that, in a way, they, well, first of all, they didn't make a real decision. They sort of dodged it. And, and 
Because on one hand, they seem to be saying, well, from an artistic perspective, it may be transformation, but it doesn't matter if it's artistic transformation as long as it stays in the game reserve of the art museum and in the art world. But as soon as there is a question of money and an exchange of money, then it actually, maybe it is a transformation. And this is a case where, as I see it, and I don't know anything about the law whatsoever, it seems like this is the justices having their cake and eat it too. They're able to reward Goldsmith, who did make an image, and she should be fairly paid for image. But on the one hand, they're separating an artistic analysis from a financial analysis. And I don't think that they are two different things in a way. I think you can't be... It can't be an artwork in one realm, which means that it's been transformed, and not an artwork in the other realm. And I think they didn't answer the case, and they've made a bit of a mess of things by doing this. I think that artists and museums are going to be very confused, and that's where I think. Yeah, so that's fabulous, and I'm going to unpack that with you over the next few minutes. But I think your answer, Adam, just demonstrates my central point, which is you don't need to be a lawyer to understand what the court is doing here, because you got it exactly right. And, you know, just to add a little detail, the court issues a seven to two decision, and Justice Sotomayor writes the majority, and Justice Kagan, joined by Chief Justice Roberts, writes the dissent. And Sotomayor says that the Warhol Foundation is at fault, and that the sale of orange prints didn't meet the criteria for fair use. Because what Sotomayor says is the fair use exception is only permissible if the character and purpose of the new work differs from the original. But, the court says, Goldsmith's photo and Warhol's portrait of Prince serve near identical purposes. As just Sotomayor says, both are portraits of Prince used in magazines to illustrate stories about Prince. And she says, and this is picking up on your point, Adam, both works are commercial in nature, undercutting the Warhol Foundation's claim to fair use. So you've got this emphasis on what are you using it for? Are you making money? And if you are, it doesn't follow as fair use. And also this question of transformation. You know, Justice Sotomayor says, okay, maybe Warhol's portrait of Prince may have transformed the original photograph, but you have to consider more than just that. They're still used for the same purpose, to appear in a magazine article. And so there's not enough transformation in order to qualify as fair use. And, and that is really, I think, you know, when you talk, Adam, about how artists are going to react and how museums, such as your role at the Whitney, what you have to think about now, I think that's kind of where the rubber hits the road. So Justice Sotomayor says, this is a quote from the decision, to hold otherwise would potentially authorize a range of commercial copying of photographs to be used for purposes that are substantially the same as those of the originals. As long as the user somehow portrays the subject of the photo differently, he could make modest alterations to the original, sell it to an outlet to accompany a story about the subject, and claim transformative use. Um, and that, Deb, is where I want to bring you in because, you know, First of all, I'm interested in your views generally about the decision, but then specifically with your own art. 
what Justice Sotomayor said could be applied and applied very much to what you do. You know, like I said, I've been cramming on this because I think I'm not alone in not understanding this, including Mm -hmm. people who are on the Warhol board. We are all like, I don't quite get it. So, but I have several things to say about the decision and we can get to me, but a lot of them are questions for you, Neil, but a couple things is precedent. Up to this moment, as far as I can understand, the court said transforming and the First Amendment freedom of expression actually trumps copyright. Um, so I don't understand. Well, I do understand because this court is resistant to precedents all over the place. <laughs> um, but given that, in the way that Dobbs was overturned, I feel like in a strange way this is connected. In that case, they didn't pay any attention to any amicus briefs or experts in the field or doctors or the AMA. And in this case, they didn't take into consideration anybody, foundations, museums, critics, and artists who wrote on behalf of the Warhol Foundation. So if they have, they, the court, has changed the meaning of use and transformation. I mean, they, she acknowledges that this is transformed. That's in her decision. If it was originally transformed and then it can't be used in any way the artist wants to, she's challenging the definition of use as we know it by concentrating on the licensing part, not the meaning, not the idea of use as in meaning of the transformed work in contradiction to the precedent. Where does that fit into this? And also, there's an extremely slippery slope here. First of all, art is commercial. So the distinction between art and commerce at this point in the 21st century almost is absurd. So if I make a painting that quotes, for instance, which I've done, that quotes an Andy Warhol painting, meaning I used Andy Warhol's in 1990, I used Andy Warhol's before and after in a painting I called before and happily ever after. And it juxtaposed Andy's straight copy of his nose job painting, and I coupled it with something to transform the meaning of Andy's. Yet we're both making paintings that are for sale. Can Andy Warhol Foundation now sue me? Right. I mean, I think that's really the heart of, of what this is about. And indeed, in the Supreme Court case, your work, a different work, not the Warhol, you know, nose job one, which is, I'm glad to say, at the Whitney Museum, but uh, a different piece of work that uh, you entitled Red Deb was part of the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation's brief and basically transformed it in a remarkable way. This is what the amicus brief, the friend of the court brief, said to the court, the resemblance to the original Warhol is striking, but Cass's work is nonetheless transformative. Cass's subtle shift changes the meaning of the original work to reflect Cass's themes, her gender, Jewishness, and sexuality. By repurposing Warhol's style, you, Deb Cass, were able to challenge the male-dominated art world. And you know, there's something so transformative, obviously, about Red Deb. At the same time, I think what the court's worried about is that 
Well, then anyone can come along and they could do it to you, Deb. They could change one line in one of your paintings and say, well, now I'm actually making a statement about anti-Jewish identity or, you know, straight people or who knows what, and effectively appropriate the image um, and make money off of it. Does that concern you at all? No. No. I think this is all in the realm of freedom of expression and the First Amendment. And, you know, I was very excited to see that I'm in the permanent records of the Supreme Court of the United States with this piece, with any piece. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of blown away. But I was also kind of blown away to get a, an email from Neil Cottrell in my inbox one day. So as a legal nerd, this is all, all very exciting. But I don't know if this is going to answer your question. First of all, in that piece, I didn't appropriate a photograph. I took my own photograph. I appropriated a style. Is this on the same slippery slope? I don't know. But is anyone who uses like a filter to make something lo else look like an Andy Warhol going to be subject to a problem? I don't think so, because that's a style thing. It's a filter. It's a look. It's not an image of Prince that then Andy used. So I don't know if that answered the question. Neil, the question for me is, in a funny way, how the court made their decision, in a funny way, doesn't really have a lot to do with transformation. That really doesn't seem, in a way, to be the question. So I think that for us to be discussing whether it's transformative or not is not the point. Mm -hmm. The point is, does commerce, does the marketplace trump, to use an unfortunate word, does it trump the definition of what art is and what freedom of speech is? And yes. I would say that is a very disturbing thing, that when, when the market, the exigencies of the market and sales and profit start to define the notion of what is art and what is the notion of freedom of expression, that to me is concerning. To me, and I didn't realize that the um, fair use had always been held up um, consistently, that even becomes even more concerning because in a way, to me, that implies that the notion of the defining of art is kept slightly, and I has used this word hesitantly, sacred in the sense that there's something above and beyond the marketplace of capitalism that determines what America is about. The world of ideas, that the world of freedom of thought, that the world of creativity is above and beyond profit in the end, even if there are legitimate concerns of profit, uh, both by artists and non-artists. And I, and by the way, I just friend Goldsmith's right to make money from her images, and I'm not, this is not, and also when I read one of the, the pieces that Joel Wax just sent me, actually it, it talks about how Sotomayor very much sees Goldsmith yes. as sort of the downtrodden artist in this and defending, and I think that that's sort of a misunderstanding here, that, that, that she, um, frankly, misunderstood what the argument was about, which is really about a larger question, not about the little person who is defending themselves against the Big Bad World Foundation or the famous artist, but it's really a question of what is art? And are we going, you know, is the Supreme Court going to get into the definition of what art is? That's crazy to me. Okay. And it seems like through precedent, they had actually put it aside and basically said, no, we're not going to do that. There's something above and beyond. Deborah, are you worried that the court here is overstepping its bounds? That's what I'm saying here. It's like, like in Rome, they completely pushed precedent aside because the precedent has been 
that transformation of First Amendment trumps copyright. I, that's what I said before. Exactly. And, exactly. And 100%. if it doesn't, again, there's your slippery slope. What's to say my painting of before and after that Andy Warhol Foundation can't sue me for using it directly? Um, in a painting of mine, we are using it for the same commercial purposes for sale. At the same time, I want to push both of you on this because, you know, Deb makes a really important point that in contemporary society, art has commercial overtones and essences at every turn. And I think what Sotomayor is worried about is a world in which, let's say, I, Neil Katyal, can go take Red Deb take it exactly as it is and display it and perhaps sell it under my name. And to say, you know, I am changing the meaning because it's really different if Neil Katyal, you know, portrays and, and creates Red Deb and it has a different meaning than if Deb, you do it. And so if we have the transformative test alone and people are allowed to make money off of it, it's commercial, at least in some point in nature, what's going to happen is that there won't be any protection for artists whatsoever. I think that's what she's getting at. Yet there has been. There has been protection. But she acknowledges that it's a transformative thing. So, I, it, I mean, it does, it's, it's, she's trying to have her cake here and eat it too. She's saying, well, for the, for the purposes of copyright, it's not transformative because it's a market. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't really understand what she's, she, what she's trying to do here. I really well, don't. I think what she's trying to do is say transformation alone is not enough. You have to look at what the use is. And so what would the protection right. be if uh, you don't look to the commercial nature of the work. That's, you know, in fairness, and, you know, to be clear, I actually agree with Justice Kagan's dissent, which I'll talk about in a moment, but I'm trying to give her her due here and say, this is what I think she's worried about. But how do you stop that from interfering with free expression exactly. and artistic, you know, the history of everything we do, of all cultural narratives, is based on its own history. It's based on its own language. Law uses its own language to change the law. Art uses its own language <laughs> to change art. Her, uh, Kate, well, we're going to get to Kagan, but her example of Giorgione, Giorgione to Titian to Manet was fantastic. I mean, we build all culture, all narratives, all structures build on themselves. So how can you expand on that structure without referring to it. Yeah, I mean, that is really Kagan's point, and you say it so well. She's basically saying the majority opinion by Sotomayor is really going to prevent artistic masterpieces from being created. You know, Shakespeare and Stravinsky, Hayden and Bob Dylan, Manet and Bacon, all of them couldn't have produced some of their most important works, Kagan says, under the majority's ruling because they're all drawing on the works of predecessors. They're improving and transforming the work. I take it what Sotomayor would say in answer is, well, you could borrow from those works and you could do so if you're doing you it. You can't sell it. <laughs> yeah, you can't sell it. You can't make any money. Or if you want to make money, you got to pay for it. And you got to pay the original artist for whatever you're appropriating. Is that not a sufficient answer? 
I, I just, I come back to so many basic things like the blues. It's all the same chord structure. They just changed the words. So is Muddy Waters going to have to pay, or, or is Bessie Smith going to have to pay Muddy Waters is going to have to pay well, Mississippi John Hurt? It's absurd. And, you know, I think of Dylan. Well, I also think of Picasso. Good artists borrow, great artists steal. It's like famous dictum. I think, you know, look, the, I think there's a tautology here. And that problem is that, you know, that the ideas of ownership and private property are totally in opposition to the making of art. And we are trying to create a legal structure around a separation that's based on that, which is understandable. And, you know, but the reality is artists are trying to always avoid all boundaries. And those boundaries include marketplace, even as many of them profit from the marketplace. So I'm not saying that artists are holier than thou. Yes, they benefit from that too. But the reality is artists are are like Houdinis. They're always trying to escape the, the handcuffs that they're putting on themselves. That, that's the trick. I love this. Uh, analogy about artists and blues and muddy waters and the like. And in a couple of weeks, the Courtside podcast is going to get into this from a different angle with Aaron Desner, who's the guitarist for The National. And we're going to talk about artificial intelligence and copyright. And right now, there's a big debate brewing, particularly in Hollywood, but it's more than Hollywood. It's do the you know creators of ChatGPT that scrape the internet for information uh, to power artificial intelligence, do the original creators of that information, whether it's an actor or whether it's an author or whatever, will they hold a copyright in their original works or not? And it's a similar micro, the, the debate is very similar. It's, you know, do you pay all of those original creators or do you say, no, that's actually what human intellectual achievements all about, which is just borrowing from those who come before. Now, obviously, artificial intelligence automates the process in a way that's different than what Deb is doing or what any other, you know, traditional portrait artist is doing. But nonetheless, I think the structure of the debate is the same in the artificial intelligence world as it is in what we're discussing here. And the other question is, it's really nerdy, I think. But when Andy made the other 14 pieces or 15 pieces, they were works of art. So they exist in a different realm. They're not licensing. They're not for licensing, blah, blah, blah. What Vanity Fair just licensed from the foundation was a work of art. It was one of the things made that is technically in a different category. So... I've been really confused about the, her right to sue the foundation over using an existing work of art that is pre-expression, transformative, and in a different realm. Well, I, I take it that what she's saying is that the terms of the original deal were limited only to the use of that one that one yes. image that ultimately right. came out in Vanity Fair, and that once the foundation sold another magazine, a different image that that 
extended beyond the terms of the original. That's how I read it. That's how I read it too. And in fact, if the Warhol Foundation had paid the $10,000, then it would have been over. And wait a minute. And, but if he sold those paintings in the art market, which he did, and those prints in the art market, that was cool. I'm not sure that would have been cool, but it wouldn't have been the foundation's, uh, you know, problem at that point. That would have been Warhol on his own doing it. And then the claim would be, did Warhol appropriate this image beyond the terms of any license or right that he had back in 1984? But in the old terms of transformation, he didn't need to license it to make a work of art. Just on the transformation piece, but then it would go to what is the commercial use piece that we've been discussing. That's that's the problem, the slippery slope, meaning I can use before and after, even though I did it in 1990, because the Warhol Foundation can sue me now, because it's for the same commercial purpose. And you've hit the nail on the head, and uh, that's exactly the concern that I think Justice Kagan has, and something that copyright law is really going to have to um, grapple with now. And, you know, I'm hardened by your response that artists generally just produce and don't care about copyright law. But at some point, this could become a real problem. I mean, the next Deb Cass, who's just starting out, may really have to worry, if I'm doing this kind of work, who's going to come after me, particularly if I make any money off of it? And that's the point is to make money off it. Sorry, I'm not saying people create art specifically with that goal, but you've got to live and it is what people want. They want to make money off their work. There's no question about that. Like Barbara Kruger says, you make history when you do business. Deb, do you think about copyright law when you're working? Uh, no. <laughs> and by the way, I've asked several other artists that question in anticipation of this, and, and I have to say that none of them do. No. Not, not, all, and, and by the way, some of them are artists who um, uh, make their art based on taking and appropriating other materials. And that is not, they go and they do their work and they will continue to do their work. Um, and what's going to happen is some of these things are going to end up in the court, but it's not going to stop people from working this way. And Adam, let me ask the same question to you as a museum director. Do you think about copyright in the acquisitions process or others? And, and how is this decision impacting you? Um, I don't per se, but our, uh, um, our in-house counsel does, but, you know, we, we, you know, as from a curatorial perspective, I guess we look at that transformational test. We look at is the artist who's bringing forward the work, and this is not from a legal perspective, but are they adding something to the picture, pun intended, that was not there before? And if that is really, you know, something that is, we believe, profound and is really changing the conversation and really meaningful in the history of human creation, then we add it to our collection. Then the next question is how our lawyers deal with the copyright issues around it. So it has never been a case where we have not bought a piece from the get-go based on a copyright issue. The issue is then how do you deal with a copyright issue once you've bought the piece? Just FYI, I have heard from an attorney involved with um, these issues that uh, immediately after this decision uh, was announced, They know of seven to eight artists who received cease and desist letters. That's frightening. 
I wanted Adam to hear this. That's what I wanted to say. It's like, there's going to be a lot more abstract painting. Can't get sued. But How I, interesting. With, with the music thing. Like, it's jazz. Yeah. Everybody does the same pop standards. It's why I use Andy. It's like pop standards. It's jazz. It's like, I take Andy, I rip. This is exact. My favorite things. Is, is is who's going to sue who? Sarah Vaughn, Miles Davis, you know, like, that's what you do. You play other people's stuff differently. That's just brilliant, Deb. It's exactly, it's the heart of the whole thing. You got it perfectly. I really didn't understand this about my own work until I was on a plane to New Orleans for the first presentation of the Warhol Project that was at the Newcomb Museum at Tulane University. I had grown up in a house where jazz records were played morning, noon, and night. My father was one of those first-generation Jewish guys who played the sax. He was kind of a hipster dentist who had this encyclopedic knowledge of jazz, which he talked about constantly. So who did what with each melody, what Miles did or Billy did or Sarah did and how it was different? And I was fascinated by this. I knew a lot for a four-year-old about jazz, but it was only on the plane to New Orleans that I realized what I had done is exactly what I learned to do in my house as the first great art form I ever was aware of, which is I took a melody and I changed it. And this is what great artists did in my house. That is phenomenal. And it yeah. was a profound, profound revelation that I was actually working exactly in the same way, in the way as an interpretive artist. And the importance of being an interpretive artist. How do you move anything forward if you can't examine it, take it apart, use it, repurpose it? That is what language is for. And what we do with history is how we move forward. And this ruling put such a roadblock on that, on that process. It's almost as if these institutions continually over and over again, especially at the court, keep telling us, no, it is as we say it is, it is as it always was, and we are not going to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Or move back like on dubs. Right. right. I mean, so right. it's not just standing still it's jumping back but i am really upset about the whole precedent thing and the fact that there no, was no i completely agree with you i mean if you can do that to dobbs what can't you do it for i mean roe versus wade was the super precedent i mean yep. in 1992 it was republican justices o'connor kennedy and Souter that said we can't overrule this it's indelible it's to, critical to our court's legitimacy and then they just go ahead and do it anyway. It's unbelievable, yeah. but they've yeah. done it again here. And even though the Second Circuit Court was like, we don't think we should be art critics, this is exactly what SCOTUS has become. Art <laughs> I mean, oh, we, don't, we can't be, we're just judges. We can't be art critics. It's like, no, now you're an art critic. You're saying what's legitimate art and what isn't legitimate art. Yeah. Deb, I want to return to your invocation of Justice Kagan and the Manet reference, because, you know, this is a very different way for lawyers or a justice to speak. I mean, she actually has paintings, images of paintings in her written dissent. Normally, lawyers speak through words. Someone like you speaks through a variety of other media, but including visual images. Um, 
I'm curious just about your view of the use of art in an image in a judicial opinion. Does that strike you as a good way to communicate um, when you're thinking about art and conveying a point of view? Obviously, you could just write out the message you're trying to convey, but that's not what you do. You make people think through using an image. Um, why do you do that? Because I'm an artist. <laughs> I mean, that's how I communicate. That's why. I, I don't know how to answer that question other than that's what artists do. But artists are, uh, artists are usually their work is about ambiguity and not about it. And it's done, ambiguity is done through precision, but it is about multiple meetings. And it's playing off the notion of multiple meanings and multiple implications. And I think that that's, uh, that may, I, I love the idea that she's using images, but that may complicate things rather than, I, I love it because I see, I like as an art historian, I think in images rather than in words first. And I admire that she's working, trying to do that, but it may add more complications. But actually all three of those images side by side that she cites, the Giorgione, the Titian and the Manet. And to me, the argument, it raised as many questions as it did clarification, even though I fundamentally agree with the thrust of where she's going. And, you know, Adam, that reminds me when we were looking at Charles Ray last year, you and I had this discussion because as a lawyer, I feel like my job is to speak as clearly and unambiguously as possible so that there is only one meaning that could be taken from something that I write or something that I say in court. Whereas an artist generally is trying to reach into the world of multiple meanings and perhaps guide you to a certain place in the end. But it's a, a very, very different, much more elliptical way of thinking about something. You know, I think, I mean, again, art is not linear. And I, I imagine the attempt of law is to be somewhat linear. I mean, it would have quite worked that way, probably. But I think they're two fundamentally different modes of thinking. Both are very interesting and, and useful in our culture, but they're very different. Adam, Warhol's focus on originality isn't itself original. It comes from an earlier tradition. Can you tell us a little about that? You know, the one thing I was thinking about was, you know, Warhol coming out of that moment, you know, um, sort of in mid-century, coming sort of out of Duchamp and the whole idea of artists really drilling down on on questioning the nature of originality. And, I mean, it's really a historical phenomena in a way, because, in fact, if you look at the, the, the things that Justice Kagan was pointing out, she was pointing out how artists do this liberally, and I, you know, up to a point historically, and I think the idea of stealing was probably less of an issue at that time in a way. Then you have artists drilling down, whether it's, you know, Duchamp or Shari Levine later on, or Chaim Steinbeck or, or Barbara Kruger, whoever the artist is, um, really drilling down into the question of what is originality and what makes art. And it was about a fundamental questioning of which Warhol is very much a part of. And I think that that's what this, this whole case arises out of that, out of that kind of early to mid-century investigation, 20th, 20th century investigation, which now I think is playing out actually in different ways. And actually, ironically, this is a case that 
you know, could have been argued and should, should have been argued maybe 30 years ago and not been decided this way. But I think in a funny way, they, the conversation has moved on. I'm looking at young artists' work and, the, and transformationally, the transformation is so profound in young artists' work. And not to say that there aren't artists who are literally lifting and trying to understand what is the notion of copy versus original. Um, I think that it's a question that's actually moved on to another direction. So it's sort of fascinating for me from that point of view. Wonderful. Thank you both so much. This has been just a phenomenal discussion about art and the law and the intersection and clash between the two. I can't thank you enough for being part of this conversation. Stop over at neilcatial.substack.com to support the show, and there you'll find all the episodes, written pieces, and bonus material, and you can sign up so you don't miss anything. That's neilcatial.substack.com, N-E-A-L-K-A-T-Y-A-L.substack.com. The music for the show was composed by the artists Dawson Hollow and Ronnie Barhadas. Production services are provided by J.E. Peterson and Tyler Morissette at Voltage. This is Neil Katyal. Thank you for listening, and I'll have a new episode of Courtside for you next week.